Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, they have hundreds of thousands of audiobooks. You know what an audiobook is, right? It's a book you can listen to. And now uh, you can get a freebie on the house, on the show. If you go to audibletrial.com slash other people, that's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell it out the traditional way. You go there, you get a free uh, audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Audibletrial.com slash other people. Go get an audiobook. It's fun. It's edifying. It'll make you a better person depending on what book you choose. AudibleTrial.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is occasionally repetitive. This is not intentionally annoying. How are you today? How's it going? What's happening? What's the word? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to be talking uh, into this microphone and imagining you listening somewhere. I hope this is all, you know, uh, This is is this real? Are you really listening? <laughs> Please tell me that this is not all just a figment of my imagination. My guest today is Layla Lalami. Layla Lalami. Uh, her new novel, The Moors Account, is out there now from Pantheon. Uh, we had a good conversation. I'm excited to share it with you in just a moment. Um, so, I, you know, I continue to get mail. I'm going to share some more mail. If you guys uh, email me, I feel compelled to read it on the air. As much of it, you know, not all of it, but as much of it as I can. So... Uh, I got a letter from a, a woman named Elizabeth. She writes, Dear Brad, I just wanted to send a thank you for everything about this podcast. I'm a poet living in L.A. with a one-year-old and a terrible commute. So discovering other people this year has been an absolute lifesaver. I've got one book out and was just despairing over never, ever again having the time or the inspiration to write even a single poem. But you've kept me thinking about writing, the process, the people who do it, the pain it causes. <laughs> And just in general, made me feel less bizarre as a person who writes weird things and lives in the world. So anyway, thanks. Keep doing what you're doing, Elizabeth. 
the pain it causes. <laughs> if nothing else, I, I am glad to know that this show serves uh, as a, a testament to the horrible pain that writing causes. Which, which uh, is reminding me of uh, when I was in college, uh, the movie The Doors. There, that was like a, a thing for me and my friends. We'd watch the movie The Doors, and we found it very funny. And uh, there's a line in that movie uh, where uh, Val Kilmer, who is playing Jim Morrison, uh, screams. I believe he's you know he's talking to Pamela, his wife, the, Jim Morrison's wife, and he says, uh, "Let me introduce you to my friend Pain." We used to say that to one another while we were in altered states, <laughs> or not. Yeah, I don't know. I just that line has always made me laugh. Uh, and there's also the uh, what's that uh, the Jim Morrison uh, poem set to music called uh, "Stoned Immaculate." Where is that? Let me get that. Let me get that up here. We can. Uh... Here it is. Let me tell you about heartache and the loss of God, wandering, wandering, and hopeless nights. This is the new mantra. This is the new tagline for my show. Let me tell you about heartache and the loss of God, wandering, wandering, and hopeless I'm gonna, nights. I'm going to co-opt this from uh, Jim Morrison and The Doors. <laughs> so I've got one more letter to read, and then we'll get started. Uh, coincidentally, uh, this letter comes from a gentleman named Jim, and he writes, Hey, Brad. Uh, first, I wanted to thank you for interviewing Eric Obanoff of $2 Radio. I've loved everything those guys and gals have put out, and his insight into the publishing aspect was refreshing. Additionally, I just want to say that I tune in all the time. I listen the day after every podcast, and through uh, premium access, I enjoy going back and listening to previous episodes in the archives. It never gets old to me. I can probably create a map of your hike of the Appalachian Trail. Uh, that being said, it does not annoy me to hear these stories. It's not like you bring it up to toot your own horn. It's always relative to the conversation with the author, and I can appreciate that. I'd rather have you endearing yourself to these authors and getting a bit more candid discussion and or answers than being a strict Q&A like, like any other damned interview. As for the critics, I see it like this. They're listening. They're listening and they're feeling something. You're discussing art and making people feel something. That's an amazing thing, and I love listening to it. Do your damn thing, man. Cheers, Jim. So thanks, Jim. And, you know, for people who are uh, not up to speed, he's talking about, uh, you know, there's been a lot of mail, a flurry of mail over the course of the past three episodes. There was some criticism of, of uh, the show. You can listen to episodes uh, 312 and 313 to catch yourselves up. I'm not going to keep going over this. You get the gist, probably. You can glean the gist. Is that a phrase? Glean the gist? <laughs> Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. 
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, my guest today is Layla Lalami. It's a great pleasure to have her here on the program. Uh, and I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing from her. Her new book is called The Moore's Account. It's out there now from Pantheon. So here she is, folks. This is Layla Lalami, and her novel, once again, is called The Moore's Account. So I was born and raised in Morocco. That um, When I finished high school, I did an undergraduate degree in English. Uh, it was called English Language and Literature at the time. And um, after that, I studied in England uh, for a bit and then went back to Morocco. And um, then I decided to do um, a PhD here uh, at USC. And so I arrived here uh, in 1992. And um, when I was, you know... (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. Sometimes when I think back about being, you know, 23 or 24 and deciding you're going to go 6,000 miles away from home to do, to do a degree, it amazes me. But, um, but it seemed perfectly normal to me at the time. Um, and so anyway, so then I arrived here uh, in 1992, and it was right after the L.A. riots. Good time to um, good time to show up. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I remember after I had gotten my acceptance letter and, and then a couple of months later, USC sent us another letter saying, don't worry, foreign students, don't worry, <laughs> it, it will be okay. And um, so it was, you know, um, and, and, and I remember that one of my professors uh, in Morocco, a very nice, nice man, he said, you know, is there no other place that you could go to study? Because uh, <laughs> when I was at USC, somebody got stabbed on campus. It's really dangerous. Are you sure? girl like you you know <laughs> right right um but so anyway so that that that's how it happened and i uh, when i arrived here i um i don't know there's just something about la that um, makes it feel like home very quickly um it, it certainly was a very different experience than when i was in london and i made friends a lot more quickly and everything felt more familiar about la than than london or any other place that i had been and um, so, but then a, a few years later, I ended up getting married. And so before I knew it, I was mortgaged and married and, you know, <laughs> living in L.A. So it was, <laughs> it really was quite by chance. And now it's been 20 years and it just feels um, very homey to me. Well, wow. well, that's good. That's good to hear. And, and I'm yeah. very curious to hear about growing up in Morocco. Yeah. Uh, which is an experience that I have very little context for. Unfortunately, I've never been. Uh, it's on mm-hmm. my it's on my list. But mm-hmm. what what was that like? Like what what town did you grow up in? Um, and then what was it what was it like to grow up there? Well, so I was born in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco, and it's on it's on the Atlantic coast. It's about uh, sixty miles north of Casablanca, which is perhaps the city that most people. Um, have heard of when they've heard of Morocco, if at all. Um, <laughs> in, in America, yeah. yeah in, in America, right. we barely know like what, what the states right. are, let alone other right. countries. Well, oftentimes people would say in Morocco, and then they would get confused and think it was Monaco. But anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. so but um, so so Rabat is the capital, and uh, um, so when I was growing up, my family back then, so this was in the seventies. There was only one state channel, and 
Um, it's, it, it, you know, we spent most of our time just reading, just because there was never, there were no distractions. There was re- never, you know, m- never anything really all that interesting on television. And, and um, so we, we spent a lot of time reading. My, my mom, my dad, my siblings, we all read. And that never really struck me as unusual. That was like really, the, that was normal for me. That everybody in your family reads, and there are books in your house. Did you and guys? Did you guys? Like, did you guys actually like physically read in the same room, or was it? Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the TV would be on, but everybody was reading, you know. And so that's what you did every night. And and we read a lot. And when I say when I read a lot, it's not as if my family was, you know, reading Tolstoy or or anything like that. It's just that they loved to read. And uh, neither of my parents actually went to college, but they were just big readers. And so um, I read a lot when I was little. I read, well, obviously you start out with comic books, but then I also read a lot of uh, uh, mystery and crime and romance and a lot of genre writing. And and then big family sagas, um, um, historical novels, all kinds of things. Um and so that really never struck me as unusual because that was just how I grew up. And it was only later when I, uh, when I was in my late teens and I would go to my friend's house for like a study session or whatever and then notice that other people didn't really, there were no books around or that people, you know, or that, you know, that, they, that other people weren't necessarily all big readers. So now I count myself um, as having been very fortunate because that I think is very important, especially nowadays. I'm a mother now and I see how it's very easy for kids to get distracted with TV and, you know, iPads and devices. And, and it's, uh, it's just become a bigger challenge to kind of inculcate this love of reading in children. Yeah. It's very important. Yeah. How old is uh, it? Yeah. I have a four year old and like, She's already into ebooks and like you know that's good that's good I guess but <laughs> yeah. they're, they're sort of animated and they talk to yeah. you and I'm like thinking yeah. is this really it and but she likes those sometimes better than the paper books and mm-hmm. I don't know you know it's like it's a little tough because yeah. it's better than nothing but it's my yeah not. yeah no it's definitely a challenge I mean my husband and I have an 11 year old daughter and when she was really little she used to love to read because she would see us reading and she loved it. But then what happened was that when she started uh, school, I think it happens maybe in the second or third grade, they start making kids write down um, all the books that they're reading and that they have to read 20 minutes a day and you can only read a book that is at your reading level. There's all these rules around it. And it just turns into homework. And so I started noticing that she wasn't, um, she wasn't taking charge of her own reading anymore. It became, uh, this is what I have to do for homework for school. So it kind of saddened me because we had been reading to her ever since she was a baby, and we had stopped around the second or third grade because she was like, oh, no, no, I want to read to myself. But when I noticed that that's what was happening, that it had turned into homework, then we had to institute, like, sort of a family reading time. So then, you know we sit and everybody reads their book or I read a book to her and just to kind of encourage that because it's very important to me. I think reading is is different from any other activity. It just, you can literally feel it when you're engaging in it. You feel like you're 
you know, you have all these images in your head. They're so much better than whatever, any other images that you have, you know, when you're watching a movie or a TV, because those are the images that you've created in your head, and they're yours, and they're nobody else's. And it's just very, it's the only way in which you can share into another person's thoughts and feelings and really what it's like to be that person. It's like almost kind of like telepathy. And and it's such an incredible experience that... Um, that I, I, it's just very important to me that, that, that she have it. Yeah, I mean, as far as media goes, like books, like it's, when you're locked into a really good book, whatever kind it is, uh, yeah. there's something there's something distinctly nourishing about it. Like you feel yeah. good, and I can, and by contrast, like you can watch, you know, certain television shows or something, and it's good going down, but it's sort of junk food. And then when you're done, yeah, yeah. when you're done, you sort of feel yeah. hungover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I do love TV. I do love it. It's yeah. just that I feel that you know it's it's important to have that balance where you know you do always have time to read every day. It's just it just has to be part of what you do because it, it's um, it's just good for your brain. It's good for your heart. Uh, TV, on the other hand, it's a little bit harder to find, you know, that real um, quality TV, although it's been better the last few years. So. Yeah, it has. Yeah. So yeah. And, I, and when you were describing your childhood earlier and like the, the, the constant family reading and everything, right. there's something sort of like it, it uh, evokes nostalgia for me, like the time before <laughs> all of these distractions <laughs> and the constant screens. I think and anybody who has anybody who's yeah. had both of those experiences, because, you know, I'm almost 40 yeah. years old. So, like, I remember yeah. pre-Internet. Yeah, my childhood, yes. had, my childhood had none of that. I remember like yeah. when, when cable television was new. I mean, yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I remember when 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 I arrived in L.A. and I had to get an A and Z guide or was it the Thomas guide? What, what was it called? Where you if you had to go look for an address like if, and then you had to have the guide in your car yeah. and you had to know how to read a map. Right. You actually had to know how to look up and read a map and know, you know, and direct yourself. And now I feel like it's so easy. You just get your phone and and it's all it, it tells you exactly what you do and you have to obey the machine and, <laughs> <laughs> right. and do what the machine tells you. And so often it's wrong and yet we continue to use it and I don't know. It just it frightens me a little bit that we've become so dependent on these uh, on the little gadgets. Yeah, you know? so, and I don't, th- yeah. I, don't th- I don't think it's going backwards. I don't th- I think no, <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. That's why I'm grateful. I at least have that skill that I can <laughs> that I can do it. I don't know about this, the the young kids. Yeah, no. I mean, for people born into it, it's going to be a totally different story. Yeah. So, um, okay. So you said your parents didn't go to college. So what, what right. did they, what did they do? I mean, they obviously fostered a love of reading in you. Um, yeah. but did they, did they work creatively at all or? Yeah, my dad. Um, so my dad, his background, uh, was that he worked for this, um, I guess it, the equivalent would be the DWP water and power, um, in Rabat in the capital. Uh, and then he worked, he took, he went to night and you know he he was he's the very um probably the smartest man i know uh or knew at the time and then um he um worked up you know in his in his company and tried to to better himself you know educationally and everything but he never you know when he was in high school he never actually went straight to college or anything like that my mom was a homemaker and um 
again, nowadays, you know, the fact that you can come home and, you know, somebody has, you know, gone to the market and bought the freshest vegetables of the day and made you a meal and it's waiting for you when you get home. Such luxury. But at the time, it just seemed, you know, that's what, that's how you eat and that's what you do. Those are the things that you do. So a fairly traditional setting, but, but on the other hand, um, yeah, you're right. But, and whenever I think about it, there is a little bit of nostalgia to it. Yeah. Did you have, did you have siblings? I did. I have an older sister, an older brother, and a younger brother. Although, even though now, even though with all the nostalgia, it's, um, I mean, I guess that's how you know that you're an immigrant, because you're carrying inside you this, this image of the old country, and it, it fades, but it, I mean, the, the colors fade a little bit, but the picture is still always there, and that's what you hold on to. But every time I go back, and I go back all the time, you know, I go back every year or every other year it's just the country changes so much and you're not there to see that change so there's always that shock about between what you remember and what the country is now like what, what's the um, what has changed so many things in fact now i was telling my sister the other day that things have changed so much that the image that i have and and the reality now are like complete almost on completely different uh planes so first of all, like it's it's just cha- I mean it's it's just it's incredible how much it's changed. It's changed politically, it's changed socially, it's changed demographically, it's changed culturally. Um, just culturally, just to give you an example, when I when I said when I was growing up, there was only one state channel, and you know just, just the old picture that you would have of uh, what what a kingdom or a dictatorship might be like. But then they. Um, the government then uh, started uh, allowing, like, all these satellite dishes. So all the satellite TV started, and then they deregulated that, and they were... Now my parents have something like 200 or 300 channels, and they have not just Moroccan channels, but they also have Middle Eastern channels, European channels. It's from all over the place. And so there's constantly, constantly, you know, news and entertainment 24-7, uh, and that's just very different than it, than what it was when we were growing up. And, and, and I think that that's just made it a little bit harder to carve out time for things like reading. And then, and then it, demographically. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I was just going to say, too, like in terms of Morocco's um, like national and cultural identity and its geography, like yes. its, its proximity to Spain, yes. but its, mm-hmm. uh, but it's uh, location, you know, on the northern coast of the African continent. Please tell me I have that right. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, like, like I'm, I'm curious. I mean, honestly, like, uh, but I am curious, like, in terms of your feeling for it and how it was for you growing up there, and, and maybe how it is for you going back now. Like, what yeah. is what is the identity like? Does it feel square? Well, does this feel squarely like I'm I'm on the African continent, or do you feel some affinity with like the southern? Spanish. Well, here is, it's, it's an interesting question. It's a very interesting question because, see, I grew up in the 1970s, and what was happening in the Arab world uh, at that time, at least at the tail end of it, was that there was Arab nationalism with, like, Nasser and all of that. So th- what that did is that it uh, created this um, love of Arab nationalism. So people started identifying themselves or People, people in Morocco started identifying themselves as Arabs. Now, of course, Morocco is, many, you know, Moroccans are many things, uh, you know, 
they're, they're Berbers and they're Arabs and they're mixed, and they're also, of course, part of Africa. Now, in the 60s, that wasn't the case, but by the 70s, that's what, that was the, the dominant sort of um, identity, is that people started looking at, at themselves as Arabs and as um, just part of the Arab world. And then starting in the 80s, once the Saudis started arriving with all their money and, and, and you know, building all these mosques and all that, you could sense a shift where people would start identifying as Muslims, right, first. And so it's just, it changes. And what the, the result of that is that many people in Morocco stopped really identifying as, as Africans, even though we are African. And so now what's happened is that there is a wave of um, immigrants and uh, foreign students that come from sub-Saharan Africa to Morocco, either to study at university or to go on to immigrate to Europe, and Morocco is kind of like the, the, the passageway. And there's now a sizable community of sub-Saharan uh, people in Morocco, and they come from you know, different countries. So what that has also done is that you, it really has laid bare the racism in Moroccan society where people will say, oh, those Africans, oh, those Africans, there's so many of them nowadays. And it's, it's hysterical because it's like, we are Africans, what are you talking about, you know? Right. It's just that there's, that there's this distinction because they are, you know, uh, they're, they're black. Not that there aren't black Moroccans, of course that there are, but there's, there's this, this notion that somehow... You know, we're, you know, they're not the same as us. And so there's a lot of racism. And in fact, today, um, or actually this week, there was just this news of this, uh, this Senegalese immigrant in Tangier who was killed in like these clashes with the locals. And it's just, it's, um, it's very frightening what it's done to the country. I mean, all this racism that, that it's just very virulent that you see now that you didn't see before. Just because of all these changes, there's cultural, there's identity changes, there's demographic changes. So it's it's a lot of um, it's a lot of things to absorb when you go back. When your idea of of of, of home was you know sitting in your living room reading a book or having tea in the backyard or you know all these very very romantic images in my head, and then when I go back, it's it, it's uh, it's different. You well, know? it doesn't sound too dissimilar from uh, the kinds of clashes that you hear about uh, in uh, Europe, in Western Europe, you yes, know, with regard yes. with regard to immigrants. And like, I'm thinking of yes. France in particular. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. And this is what many Moroccan activists have been saying. They're like, this makes no sense. You know, Moroccans are constantly complaining about the racism that they face in France or Spain or wherever they are in Europe. And here in their own country, look how they are treating other people. But, I mean, I guess that's the cycle, right? Like, that's, that's how these things always perpetuate, and, and you see it. In fact, if you bring up racism, um, you know, in conversation in Morocco and you ask people about it, like, the first thing that they'll think about is, oh, yeah, you know, my cousin in France, guess what happened to him? Or, you know, my sister in, in the Netherlands, this is what happened to her. Or, you know what I mean? Like, so I have all kinds of anecdotes about racist encounters in Europe and the fact that just, you know, 10 minutes ago we passed some guy and, you know, somebody was rude to him because he was sub-Saharan, you know, that doesn't compute. You know what I mean? It's, sure. Um, it's, it's very troubling. Yeah. So with, with regard to you and your upbringing, um, like culturally, religious, like did you have a religious upbringing? Um, so again, this is another thing that has changed. Um, in the 70s, I remember 
my grandmother was the only person who was uh, a practicing Muslim in our family. That means that none of my uncles, my cousins, no one really um, prayed five times a day, for example. Um, so it was a very secular upbringing in that way. Uh, the only time of year where people were a little bit more religious was during Ramadan. People fast, and it, it was kind of a big holiday, and um, and that was the only time when you really saw it. But other than that, nobody was was practicing much. And then um, then again, in the 80s, it started changing, and beca- people became more and more and more religious. And again, with, with satellite channels, and you have, like, all these people, or there's all these religious shows, people call in with religious questions <laughs> and all this stuff. But it just, you know, it just, it's like there's this emphasis on ritual, and now, when you go back, you see all my cousins, everybody prays five times a day. All the women have decided to cover. You know, it's just, it's very interesting to watch the, to watch the transformation uh, in the course of 20 years, how it has changed. I mean, and, and to me, you know, I look at it, I look at it a little bit differently because when I was maybe 13, I became religious. All of a sudden, I discovered religion, but it's something that I let go of when I was, you know, in my early 20s when I was in college. And and I look at this and the thing that bothers me the most is this idea of, you know, this is, you know, these people who do all this stuff, those are the true Muslims and people who don't do that are not the true Muslims. And you hear, you know, all, all kinds of, of things to that effect. And it always cracks me up because so does that mean that back in 1972 nobody in Morocco was Muslim? Because I remember that nobody was covering and nobody was, do you know what I mean? Is nobody was doing all this. There was not that emphasis sure. on appearance. There was not that emphasis that oh, I have to grow a beard so that I can, you know, show that I follow the Sunnah. And I'm, you know, it, it just it's very. It's it's very interesting to me how much the focus has been on ritual and on appearances as opposed to other things that, like I was, we were just talking about the racism. You know, um, you know how about that? Like, is not much more <laughs> worrisome than what somebody's wearing. You know, so right. so um, so yeah, it's 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 been interesting watching. Um, and, and you think like going back, like you said, like the television. Once the television. Um, you know, really kind of blew up and you have all these channels and the cult, right, the, the, cult right. the culture started to, I don't know, what's the word for it? shift a little bit. Yeah, to shift in a religious way because, look, I mean, these satellite channels, I mean, think about it, where who has the money to start all of these channels? They're all based in, uh, in for example, you have Al Jazeera, which is based in Qatar. You have, uh, there's this channel that they're all obsessed with because it, it has... Um, all kinds of music shows. It's called Rotana. I think that one is uh, is owned by the Saudis. I mean, it's just there's uh, there's a reason that these things that there's been such a shift in the culture, and it's not just one thing. It's many things. It's like the the explosion of these satellite channels. There's the the uh, the things that have happened politically. There's repression. There's a number of factors, but it's. it's They've, they've all led us to where we are now. So, and, and like the religious shows, and I, I'm sorry to keep asking, but I'm curious if there's like a parallel between like the televangelists that you might see in the United States. Or... Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You see, I mean, sometimes it's really kind of amusing. There's, because I don't keep up because I don't watch those channels. I don't have them here. But whenever I'm there, I, I watch and, and you have, it just varies. People have call-in shows where somebody will ask, you know, 
um, questions about what's the proper way of uh, doing this or that thing, or even like exceptions, or even questions about, you know, sex or anything. Um, there's all kinds of um, questions that people have, and they want the religious answer. So, of course, whoever is on the show that day is going to give them the answer, as if there is one answer. But anyway, so, so yeah, it, it very much feels like... Uh, like what we see here with televangelism. And then what about like the, uh, the, like the women deciding to cover up? Like, does that bother you at all? Do you find, because I know there are like arguments, uh, you know, against that, there are arguments for it. Like, where do you, yeah. fall, where do you fall on that? You know, I mean, obviously I don't cover, but, but um, I don't really have a problem with it. I feel like to me, this is a decision that every woman has to make for herself and whatever, you know, whatever a woman wants to do that, that makes her feel comfortable in her body, I'm all for it. I, that doesn't bother me so much. Where it bothers me is when, when somebody says, well, if you don't do it, then, you know, you're somehow not, you know, you're not a good person or whatever. Or if they say something like, oh, you know, covering is a protection against rape. Like that, something like that, that just pushes by buttons because obviously it's not true and it's just, it's, dumb and stupid so i just it's um that's where it bothers me where people then try to use the act of covering as as um justifying it with respect to men or not men do you know what i mean and that's where it, that's where it starts to bug me well, that if a woman what, wants to cover because that's her own relationship with her faith or her own relationship with her god that that's her business that's nobody's business yeah, the only time that it bothers me is when it's, like, really hot out. I'm just like, God, it looks so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, for, but for them, maybe other things are uncomfortable. I don't know. I, I I try not to judge. I mean, I couldn't do it. I get hot. And besides, I, I you know, I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't really believe in that. So, it, but, you know, it, it, everybody, I think, should do whatever they, they want with their bodies. And to me, that runs the gamut from you know, deciding what to wear, to deciding what to do with your body, to abortion, to everything. What I'm in favor of is the full integrity of of women as human beings. They should be free to do what they want with, with themselves. There you go. I, I, I can get behind that. Mm. So uh, what about when you go home? Like you have relatives who, uh, you know, now cover, who give you, you know, uh, guff for like not doing no, it yourself not, no but i mean that's also the reason that they don't is because they know exactly where i stand and that's not something <laughs> yeah you, you're like i've written it all down I've, I have, i'm on the record <laughs> no nobody says anything to me i mean it's it's kind of uh it's all behind your private back. matter yeah <laughs> probably maybe i don't know I, in any case nobody ever says anything to me but okay. what the, you know they get curious mostly about the other stuff like you know how's you know, when's your next book coming out and things like that. That's what we talk about. We don't talk about the other stuff. Yeah. Sure. So I want to talk, speaking yeah. of books, uh, and just to kind of like weave this back towards uh, literature, at least somewhat, uh, I want to talk to you about language because uh, as somebody who is uh, expatriated and who writes in a language that is not her native tongue, uh, mm-hmm. I always find that very fascinating and impressive, frankly, because like I, I can barely write in my native tongue. You know? <laughs> uh, so like when you were growing up, you spoke... Arabic? Yes. And well, specifically Moroccan Arabic. Because, okay. Um, so Arabic is, uh, to use the technical term, is in a state of diglossia. So what that means is that there's 
two varieties of the language. There's the written variety and sort of the formal variety, um, and then there's the colloquial variety. And the formal Arabic is used um, when you uh, when you write speeches or compositions or you're writing a book or you're writing an article for a newspaper or you're giving a... You're giving a sermon or you're giving a presentation, that kind of a thing. So it's really for formal settings. And the colloquial is what, you know, you're going around the corner to the, to the Hanut, uh, you know, and you're going to order something, and that's, that's, that's what you use at home, that's what you use to interact with your friends, that's what you speak on the streets and all that. And, um, and so each country has a slightly different uh, variation on that colloquial form, and so... So my 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 native language, if I have to be really proper about it, is is Moroccan Arabic. And then when you go to school, then you learn uh, standard Arabic. But at home, you speak Moroccan. And then, do you did you speak a second language growing up, or just that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I so I'm, I I spoke French. I I went to a French school when I was little. Uh, I started school really early, and so I I really don't have any memories of not not being able to speak French. Like to me, those. Those were they kind of came at the same time. So you're yeah. you're still fluent. You're official. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Wow. I'm jealous. And then, <laughs> and then when did you learn? When did you learn English? Um. So, so it's interesting because other languages. When you live in Morocco, other languages kind of penetrate your consciousness much earlier on. I feel than they do, for example, in a in in an, in a city here in America. So, um. If you listen to music and if you happen to like, you know, I don't know, rock or pop or whatever, you're going to be hearing English long before you, you learn how to speak it. So it sounds a little bit familiar even if you don't know how to speak it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So I started learning it in high school. So I guess I was uh, I was 15. I was in the uh, 12th, 11th, 10th grade. Uh, yeah, tw- uh, wait, 10th grade. Yeah, 10th grade. Yeah. And and did, like, were you fascinated with American culture as a kid? Did it infect you in that way? And I, yeah, I kind of feel like it's it's uh, uncool to have like, uh, you know, uh, a fascination or an infatuation with America or American culture these days. <laughs> it's not. Then, it's, I mean, I, not really. I mean, I wouldn't say infatuation or fascination by it. It was just it was one more thing that that to to read or to listen to or to consume in some way. So I, I when I was little, my favorite comic book was Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to I used to read to read that a lot, um, and then and then after that it was pretty much music. It was only later that after high school, once I decided that I wanted to study English in college, that I started reading uh, literature in English and uh, American literature. So really, the first time I ever read um, American literature was when I was a freshman in college. And, and like, did that experience uh, inform your desire to get your PhD here? Not really. I wasn't thinking about it at the time. I, I, I was just literally. It was a question of uh, what do I want to do? I've always wanted to write. Yes, but that's not a proper occupation. I need like something sensible. So I want to be. I wanted to be a doctor, but I missed the deadline for. Uh, so medical school in Morocco begins. Um, so you start training from the first year. You don't get a, an undergrad, and then you go to medical school. It's seven years, but it starts right from uh, first year of college. So I missed the I missed the deadline, and I couldn't go to medical school. And so 
I thought, okay, well, what else is still open? And I was like, oh, yeah, I enjoy English. I've, I've, you know, I'm pretty good at it. I've been getting good grades in that subject, and it sounds like it would be fun. I'd like, love to read. So how about that? So I did that. It really wasn't, I can't say that it was something that I did it only because I enjoyed reading and I loved the language. Those were the two reasons. And so after I got my, my undergrad, and I was like, okay, now what? Oh well, I I like linguistics. Okay, so maybe I can you know I can I can do a degree in it um, because I really um, enjoyed playing with language and I enjoyed studying it. And and when I um, when I was in my senior year and we started studying linguistics, I thought, wow, that's really fascinating what goes on with language. And so that's where my interest started. Um, and then I decided to to do a graduate degree in it. Okay, so you and then you went to London, and you and you alluded to this earlier, but you said London was not as easy of an assimilation as it was coming to the states. Yeah, yeah. What was it like for you? Well, I love the city. I love the city. Love it, love it. Um, and I, you know, and I had a great time. Uh, the only thing is that maybe it was a fault in my character, but I just felt like I felt very alone, and I also felt that it was difficult to make friends. I felt that people were quite reserved. And uh, that was true even among graduate students, even though there were quite a few uh, foreign students. But somehow, I don't know, there wasn't that kind of... Um, they, didn't just, they just didn't gel together. I don't know what it was. Um, and, you know, all our professors were perfectly nice people. They just... There was a little bit more distance, I felt, than... Uh, when I was in grad school uh, in the States. That was a little bit of a different experience. Everybody was a lot warmer and friendlier and welcoming. I don't know. That, that That's just my experience. It's not necessarily a reflection on the two cultures. Like I said, it's probably just a fault in my own character. Well, you know you know what it's making me think of? It's making me think of my daughter and like watching her on the playground and just watching kids, especially at a young age, like how easily they become friends. Yeah. <laughs> and then how, yeah. like the older you get, it seems the more difficult it is to like mesh... It, and yeah. it, it's kind of depressing to think about. Like kids just like stand next to each other and they go, "You want to play?" Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I know it gets so complicated when you get older. Doesn't oh, it? everything yeah. gets more complicated? So, yeah. yeah, I wish it. I, I wish that it wasn't mm-hmm. the case. But, mm-hmm. um, so okay. So then you decide to come over to the United States. You're going to get your PhD. Um, that has to be pleasing to any parent that their child is getting educated uh, at, <laughs> at a high level, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's no, no parent's going to say, "Don't go get your PhD." But yeah, uh, right. you, you're moving six. What did you say? Six thousand miles away. Yes, yeah. Um, which is probably like, like, how did your parents respond to that? Um, well, they were very proud. I was when I finished my undergraduate degree. I was valedictorian. Uh, this is a little bit embarrassing to say, but I was hey. uh, valedictorian of my. Um, of my college, my parents were super, super proud. And um, so from then on, I could have said, I'm going to the moon to study, and they weren't <laughs> going to say no. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, they, they weren't particularly thrilled that it was that far, because even now when they, when they come visit, they always complain about how far it is. It just takes so long to travel, and there are no direct flights. They always have to make a stopover somewhere. Um, but they were very encouraging, yeah. Okay, so you get to Los Angeles, you do your PhD in... Yes, linguistics. Linguistics, and then, like, when did you start to shift and say, I'm going to write fiction or write books? Well, what happened was I was always writing. It's just that 
I came from a background where even though my entire family was, um, everybody read and everybody consumed books and loved books, it just wasn't the kind of environment where it, that encouraged you to write. Writing was perceived as just something that people with loads of time and money on their hands do, and you you have neither. You have to go and you have to, you know, educate yourself and 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 find a good, decent job, you know, so that you can support yourself in the future. So you see this also a lot here among immigrant communities, where there's always so much emphasis on, on becoming a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, and nobody says, oh, yeah, you should become a filmmaker or you should become a poet or, you know, that's just <laughs> like, that's kind, of, <laughs> that's kind of the same thing. Like people are trying to protect their children. They're trying to set them up for the future, and that's, Especially for my parents who didn't go to college, that was really important that you have to have an education and, and so that you can have a good job and, and be able to to support yourself. Well, yeah. So, well, well yeah. I was just going to say, it's, it's like, uh, it's the old question of whether or not to do something practical or to do something that makes you happy. And, yeah. you know, it's like, it's actually a tougher question than I used to give it credit for. Like I used to, yeah. I used to think like, you know what, you can't force your kid uh, to do something they don't want to do. Or if you do, they're not going to be happy doing it. They're going to be like a miserable surgeon or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And I think there's some truth to that, but there's also, yeah. there's also some truth to like the practical value of an education. And no, yeah. I look at MFAs and, you know, for example, uh, you know, creative writing or poetry or something like that. And, you know, mm. particularly when students are taking on debt and then walking, yeah. out, walking yeah. out, walking out into the world with this degree and this, all this yeah. education, but in, you know, in the real world, it's hard to, you know, transform that into something that can win you bread. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially if they have that. I feel so bad for some of my students. They're all graduating with that. It's it's really horrible. Um, yeah. So are you? did you go and get your Ph.D. in linguistics with designs on supporting yourself as an academic? Uh, yeah, so that was the idea that, you know, um, that I would continue to do research and become a professor, and that was, you know, that was the goal, to become a university professor. But um, the whole time, you know, I mean, I started writing when I was a child. I started writing when I was like nine or ten, and I would. It was always the kind of thing that I did, you know, almost secretly. I was embarrassed to say that that I was writing because, you know, who the hell did I think I was? You know, it was just this sort of very strange relationship to the whole thing, and. Um, and so I was doing it on the side. And when I uh, arrived at USC and saw all these people studying to become filmmakers, because, you know, the USC is known for its cinema school, and seeing all these people, you know, studying to be musicians, I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing that they are, um, you know, dedicating themselves to something that they enjoy doing, even though most likely they're not going to be able to make a living doing it. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I can take, you know, writing classes at least on the side. And so that's kind of how it started. And um, at the time, you know, everything that I had written wasn't in English. Everything that I had written before had been in French. And so when when um, when I started working on my dissertation, it was just too complicated to be making switches back and forth. And so I just decided to uh, start writing in English as opposed to French. And I started taking writing classes, uh, and that's kind of how it all started. Well, that's yeah. a big, but that's a big leap. I mean, to go, it's it's one thing to be a functional in a 
in a foreign language, but it's another thing entirely to try to write a dissertation or to write like a piece of work for publication in, you know, so you, you must've gotten to a point where you felt proficient enough or did you just muscle it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of both. I'm sure. I mean, I think there came a point where I was, uh, I was thinking in English all the time and that the only time that, that I felt that things were happening in another language was when I was dreaming. But, um, you know, over the years, that has changed. Um, I was noticing the other day that, so for many years when I would need to count, like if I needed to, you know, add up numbers or do whatever, I would do it in French because that's how I was taught how to do it. And so I can still, my tables, my multiplication tables, I know <laughs> I know them in French and all that. But, you know, over the last, I would say maybe 10 years, that has stopped. Like even that I now do in English. Even the, the small intimate tasks are now in this language and I think um, that's why it would have been impossible to to have stayed writing in another language um, it just became easier and more practical to do it in in English because then there, I, I didn't need to keep doing the switch back and forth and does it give you like a better I mean does it give you better opportunity to be writing in English primarily I mean in terms of publication or distribution or well um, it it certainly gives me sort of like distance with respect to the material. When we were talking about nostalgia earlier um, and how obviously it's a distortion because I remember only certain things and not others. And on top of that, that's not how things are nowadays because things have changed. Um, When you write in English, like there's this distance that comes with it. And I think that that's useful for the material because it just makes it possible for me to see places where I might have let my emotions govern me or I might have, do you know what I mean? Like sure, where sure. it just, it, it gives me a different perspective on it. Um, I think. And so, and okay. And then like, I want to ask you about this most recent book, um, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the material you're working with, uh, an immigrant experience, but you're also working with historical fiction. I'm always fascinated. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated and a little awed by people who take on projects like this because it seems yeah. like the, the amount of research you had to have done uh, yeah. must have been extraordinary. Oh yeah, it was. <laughs> it was a lot of research. I mean, I when I came across the story uh, of Estebanico, who's the first black explorer of America, I thought, wow, that's such an interesting story. And you know, how come I've never heard of him? You know, I mean, even though I went to school in Morocco, we never heard of this guy. You know, Moroccan explorer, what? And and so it just seemed really interesting to me. But one of the reasons that I hesitated to take on the project uh, was because I realized from the beginning that it was going to involve a lot of research. And uh, so I, I kind of set it aside for a few months. I kept saying, oh, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. And I was just really, really hesitant just because I was afraid. I thought there's just so many challenges. There's this challenge of creating a voice because it has to be in the first person. That's the whole conceit of the book is that this is his version of those events and what happened and what he saw. So it has to be in the first person. How do you capture the voice of somebody from the 16th century who on top of that is also a slave and comes to to the new world and witnesses all these things that that he's witnessed? Um, And the challenge of, you know, simple things like things like setting like if you want to have a scene that takes place 
um, for example, among indigenous tribes in Texas, well, there's your challenge right there. Right. Every, every plant, every tree that you mention has to be native to that state. It can't be something that, we, that exists today but wasn't there in the 16th century. Um, the tribes, you know, you have to know exactly, you know, what, what their rituals might have been like, and that's just very, very difficult, you know, what rituals they have, what, uh, what they looked like, how they dressed, what they sounded like. These are all very difficult, and, and, and sometimes there are no research answers. You know, there's only, sometimes there's, there are answers in the research, and sometimes the, the research doesn't give you answers. Um, so... Uh, when I started thinking about this project, those are the thoughts that I had in my head. You know, if I have to do it, these are the challenges, and I just, I don't feel up to it. And I was scared for a few months I set it aside. But then um, I just, the idea just wouldn't let go of me. I just thought it was such a good idea, and I I really decided to just take a leap and do it. Um, and so, you know, five so, years later, here we are. <laughs> and so how did you originally come upon Estebanico's story? Like, yeah, I was I was reading a book. Um, I had been assigned a book to review for the Nation magazine, and as part of the, of writing the review, I decided to do a bit more research. And I went and I got this book called "We Are All Moors," and it's a book that basically draws parallels between um, how the Moor was perceived, or Moors were perceived in the 16th century, uh, in the 15th century in Spain and how uh, we perceive uh, immigrants today. And it, it draws a lot of parallels because the Moor was sort of the ultimate foreigner, the, the, the threat uh, for uh, many people in Spain. And, and they, you know how in 1492 they basically, um, the, the king and queen of Spain decided to kick out all the, all the Jews and Muslims in 1492. So this book is kind of about how all the fears about Moors and all that. And halfway through the book, I uh, came across a mention of Estebanico, and and the author was saying how this was the first black explorer of America, and he had been a part of the Narvaez uh, expedition, and he had been a companion of Cabeza de Vaca. And I remember, I mean, I thought, well, I kind of vaguely have heard the the name Cabeza de Vaca, but, but I don't know this guy, and... Um, how interesting! What a fascinating story! And so then I went out and I and I got uh, Cabeza de Vaca's book. He uh, was the treasurer of the expedition, and many years later, after they had been rescued and and he returned to Spain, he wrote a book that is essentially the first narrative we have of Spanish exploration in America. Um, and he wrote it in the in the 16th century. So in the last. A few decades of the 16th century. And the book is still available? Of course. It's called Chronicle of the Narvaez Expedition, and it's part of the Penguin Classics series. So uh, it's very thin, it's very small, but it's a fascinating document. Uh, When you read it, you learn uh, kind of how the expedition was put together, all the challenges that they went through. But it's a fascinating document for other reasons. For example, uh, you'll notice that he, that Cabeza de Vaca does things well, where he'll say, um, my boat was the first one to land on this island, and so I went and I did this, and I gave this order, and I did, you know, so he's sort of placing himself at the center of the action so that he can move the action forward. Uh, but it's also a book that is notable for its silences. So, for example, 
you for eight years that they lived with the Indians, he doesn't mention any women, not one. Um, and you think, okay, well, there's no way, right? Like something had to have happened in eight years, right? They're, they must have at least spoken to them, if nothing else, right? So, um, so there's that. And then there's the fact that uh, even though they lived for eight years with indigenous tribes, they don't really mention any uh, indigenous person by name or say what their relations with them were like. And when the survivors sort of reinvent themselves as faith healers, they tend to, Cabeza de Vaca frames that all as an exercise in religion. So he basically says, all we did to heal these people is we made the sign of the cross on them and, and things like that. So, and there's a reason why, why they did that is because at that time, if he had written about anything else or he had framed it in a different way, he could have exposed himself to charges, uh, for example, sorcery or things like that, you know, the you know, to, to the Inquisitor's uh, interests. And so, you know, it's a very interesting document for its balances as well as for what it says. And when I read it, I thought, isn't it incredible that this Moroccan slave served as translator for them? He was the one who learned all the indigenous languages and sort of acted as translator for them. And yet he's so rarely mentioned in the book, and then his testimony was never uh, taken into account. And so I thought, wow, it'd be really interesting if we could hear what he had to say about these events. But it wasn't a book that had been written. Nobody had written it. And so I thought, hmm, I'm going to, that, that, that's the book I want to read, so I'm going to write it. So was he, was he like, on the record, as far as the historical record goes, the first uh, black man from Africa to be in, the, in North America? Um, well, so that's interesting because, I mean, I can't say that he is the first black man to have landed in North America only because there were other expeditions that had attempted to land in, um, in North America. And who knows who was part of those expeditions because obviously we know only about the leaders of the expeditions and not about the other people who were part of it. But what we can say for sure is that he was the first black man to cross America. He was the first black man to arrive in New Mexico, the first outsider to arrive in, in New Mexico. Um, so, so yeah, he, that's his claim to fame, is that he was the first one to, to, to go on that journey. That's unbelievable. That's, a, that's like a, a great find, you know, and it's sort of yes. like, I'm curious to know if you have any kind of mystical view of why you wrote. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, because <laughs> I sometimes feel like with... Uh, with these, you know, uh, marginalized voices or voices that don't necessarily get um, get heard in their time or you know never have a chance to express themselves, like, is, yeah. do you believe anything like that? Like, you know, like this guy's voice, uh, you know, ha- you know, his story needed to be told, and somehow you're the vessel through which, you know, <laughs> is that too is that too uh, ridiculous, or do you? Ha- no, I mean, maybe not. I mean, I think that. Um... Maybe not. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to lie. The thought did occur to me that it was really incredible that out of all the people that that could have taken an interest in this story and written it in this way, that it was I, you know, who did it, that I'm a Moroccan immigrant. And there's a certain parallel in having a person who has arrived in this country writing about the arrival of another Moroccan, you know, four centuries earlier and there's just so many parallels of course um yeah so are you is the book um translated in and available in morocco 
Not yet. It just came out this week in the U.S. It comes out in Canada next month, and then after that, we're waiting to see it. You know, my agent is now shopping it for foreign rights, so we'll see what happens. I mean, yeah, and like, what's the? I mean, do people in Morocco like have have has your literary career um, been noticed over there? Do you ever go back on book oh, tour yeah. and, and like and read? Yeah, I, I've I've done I've done all kinds of events there. People are interested. Um, I think there's people are very just fascinated by the fact that I'm writing in English and and living here and publishing here. But they've been very welcoming, and I've done a number of events. I've done the Casablanca Book Fair twice, um, and then when people have found out about this book, oh my God, they there's so much interest. They really, really want to read about it um, because uh, this figure of Estebanico is only now starting to attract uh, a lot of attention among historians and people from his own native town. So if you go to his native town of Azamor, which is on the coast. Uh, in Morocco, a little bit uh, south of Casablanca, you'll see that there are murals that are dedicated to him. Like people have uh, tried to paint him the way that they imagine he would have looked, and um, it, it, so there is definitely interest in him. There's uh, historians in Morocco that have written about him, that you know their own uh, volumes, that stories about him, but it's mostly nonfiction, and uh, in fact, all of it nonfiction. And and um, but this is the first sort of attempt to, to retell all the events from his perspective. And the historical record, like how much is there for, to, to, you know, glean? Or to, to, yeah, so all we know about him comes to us from two sources. The first is Cabeza de Vaca, and uh, we have one line, which is that he wrote that Estebanico was uh, an Arabic-speaking black man, uh, a native of Azamor in Morocco. That's it. There's just one line. And we also know that he was the slave of Andres Dorantes, one of the other survivors, one of the four survivors. Um, and we also know that he arrived in Mexico City with the other survivors in um, about 1538. And, uh, and I'm sorry, 1536. And um, the other source of information we have on him is in the the relation of the friar Marcos Benisa, who was a friar who was sent by the viceroy of New Spain to kind of to to kind of sort of reconnoiter the area and kind of be the advance party for Coronado, um, and they used Estebanico as a scout for that expedition, and the friar wrote about him and said that he, he uh, was dressed a certain way, he had two greyhounds, he had a set of plates that he would use only for himself, he had many followers, uh, this is how he behaved. And, you know, so we have all these stories that, that the friar wrote about him, but that friar is also not known for his reliability because he also wrote that he saw seven cities of gold <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what led, you know, to, so wait, to many, many troubles. Yeah. And Estebanico, was, he was cruising around with two greyhounds? That, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> because apparently he had, uh, he had uh, adopted them in, in, in New Spain, in Mexico City, and so he brought them with him when they went on the expedition. And, then, <laughs> and forgive me for not knowing this, this is like, this might be like a, a silly question, but like, when you think going back to these times and when the Europeans were exploring, how are they getting around? How do they get from Florida? I mean, obviously they sailed, but then they get yeah. on they get on land and they're riding horses. 
Uh, yeah, so so when they first landed, when the expedition first landed, it had 80 horses. But uh, they, because of all the things that went wrong with the expedition, uh, first of all, they had to kill some of the horses in order to eat them. And then on top of that, when they realized that they were lost and they, and they had no idea how to regain their ships, they decided to build rafts and um, they needed nourishment while they were building the raft, so they ended up killing the rest of the horses and eating them. And so they had, they had no other mode of transportation except walking. And so they walked and walked and walked. Oh, my God. And so this, you know, this took place over, you know, eight years, so there's plenty of time. <laughs> I guess, and what, 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 else you, yeah, what else are you going to yeah. do? Go walk around and look, <laughs> look for some gold. <laughs> Um, okay, so, and, and then how long did it take you to write this? It took, uh, from start to finish, it took four and a half years. But, you know, when, you know, when the final revisions were turned in, I think it was four and a half years. And then there's, you know, production and whatever. So the whole thing took maybe about five years. And then, like, where do you, because I think this is a challenge for everybody who, write, who mm-hmm. you know, sets out to write a book. But I think maybe particularly for people who are working um, in historical fiction is that at some point you've got to transition from research to writing. And it can be, yes. I think it can be tempting sometimes to like bury yourself in the research as a way to avoid getting started on the actual writing of the book. Like, yeah. how did you make that pivot? Well, it's true that at the beginning I started out doing research and I had this idea in mind, I'm going to do my research, I'm going to take my notes, it's going to take like a year or two, and then I'm going to sit I'm going to write the whole thing all, you know, all the way through. But it just didn't work out that way because a lot of times when you write, you don't actually know that you're going to need whatever piece of information until you've written the scene. You're like, oh, shit, what kind of a weapon would would a 16th century conquistador carry? I better go research that. And then, you know... Um, you're writing another scene, suddenly you need to know what, what tree is native to Florida, you know, that would be in that part of Florida. Can I put this tree here? Nope, nope, that's not the right tree. I better go look for the right tree, you know. So it's um, it wasn't as neat as I would have liked it, where it would have been a period of research and a period of writing. It didn't work out that way. I did start out doing the research, but even after I started writing, there was constantly having to go back and look for detail or look for something that I wanted. And I, I wanted this book to feel very, very rich in detail. So, so it did involve a lot, of, a lot of details, a lot of things that I tried to, to unique things that I tried to put into the book. And then so a lot of research. And right now, are you, are you focusing on like the, the tour and the publicity and everything? Or are, you working, yeah. are you working on something else already? Well, I, I have I have two projects that I'm working on, but it's just been so, so difficult. I had forgotten, actually, um, since the publication of the previous book, how much time goes into traveling and answering emails and doing interviews and things like that. And it's, it just it takes a lot of time. And so you have to be really disciplined if you want to be able to write and do this all the time. But, I mean, obviously there are a lot of writers who, sort of manage i don't know how they do it but they manage to you know handle the the promotion and publicity while at the same time finding time to write so i have to be a little bit better at it well you'll be back to it soon i feel bad i feel bad i feel bad now for taking an hour of your time no 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 no, no. <laughs> so before i let you go uh i would you know I, I really hope one day to make it to morocco if i do uh wind up getting there where should i visit what's like some travel advice 
Oh my God, there's so many places to see. It really depends what you what you like. I mean, if you enjoy, um, like I I enjoy hiking and yeah, I'm, um, a hi- I'm a hiker. Okay, so what I would recommend if you enjoy hiking, I would recommend going north um, and going to this little town called Chipshawan. And uh, how do you spell how do you spell that? <laughs> it's C H. Okay. E-F-C-H-A-O-U-N. Um, and basically, there's there's some great hikes around there. And on top of that, the city itself is small and really, 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 really beautiful. Really beautiful. The whole city is blue, and it's just gorgeous. Um, and so, so that's a good place to hike. And there's also some great places to go in the south, but probably it's very hot, so it, it would have to be... At uh, in the winter, if you want to hike there. Yeah, no, I'm. I can't yeah. do. I can't do the heat. It's hot in Los Angeles right now. I'm like dying. I know it's horrible <laughs> right now. Yeah. We always yeah. we always get this in September, but uh, yeah. Anyhow, it was such a pleasure talking with you, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule uh, to do the show. And I congratulate you on all of your successes, and and wish you well going forward. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. All right, there you have it, guys. That's Layla Lalami. Go get her novel. It's called The Moore's Account. It's available now from Pantheon. You can uh, you can find Layla online at laylalalami.com. Uh, you can also follow her on Twitter, at Layla Lalami. And uh, if you like, you can sit at home and just say her name out loud because it rolls off the tongue. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app, this program, the one you're listening to right now, the Other People Podcast. It has its own app. It's free. It's available where apps are available. Uh, Go get the app. It's the easiest and best way to listen to this program. You get the app. You don't have to do anything. You you get it onto your device. You open up the app, and boom. uh, The most recent 50 episodes of this podcast are there for you free of charge. The most recent 50. And then if you want to uh, dig in to the archives and listen to uh, the back catalog, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very easy and it's very cheap. So uh, throw down a couple dollars if you want to get, sign up for premium and support the show. I would appreciate that. So, you know. Thanks for the mail. If you want to email me, the address once again, letters at otherppl.com. I hope I'm not overdoing it. It's this big uh, quandary for me. Do I do I not read the mail on the air? Do I read the mail on the air? Does it is it self indulgent? Is it yet another instance of me indulging myself to read this mail? Much of which is complimentary. I don't know. I need more haters. <laughs> stir up some stir up some controversy. The thing is, is that when I don't hear from uh, people in a harshly negative light, I just assume that they're quietly hating me, or. Uh, Even worse, they are not telling me that they hate me, but they are telling their friends. There has to be a subset of people out there. I'm thinking of like New York in particular, like a subset of the publishing business. Secretly loathes this show, considers it, uh, I don't know. See my paranoia? Paranoid. Please remember that Walter Johnson died of a brain tumor and that Andre Malraux died from a blood clot in his lung. That's all for now. Thanks to uh, Leila Lalami once again for appearing on this program. And uh, thank you to Pantheon. Go get her novel, The Moore's Account.
Broaden your horizons. Um, I think that's it. I don't know what else to say. I'm heading into the weekend as I record this. It's been very hot in Los Angeles. I wish I had a fainting couch. Actually, I don't. But it does seem like with this kind of heat that if there is ever a time where a fainting couch would be necessary. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. 